John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It's a very familiar miracle in many ways. All four Gospels record this miracle. This morning, by God's grace, I want us to, to look at it, not just to know what happened, but to understand the significance of this miracle. Follow with me. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks... He distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we have been reminded this morning already that your faithfulness is great. That your name is worthy to be blessed. That you are marvelous. And Father, that you are able. Father, it is glorious to be in your presence with your people this morning. Now, Father, we ask you, Lord, in this time of proclamation, that you would give us ears to hear you. We confess that for many of us, we have heard this miracle story time and time again. So Lord, I pray that you would give us fresh ears to hear it this morning. Give us fresh eyes to see your glory. And Father, please incline our hearts that we may grasp the meaning of it and follow you. We ask you to do these things so that you'll be honored and glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It was a very chilly night in December of 1955 when this 42-year-old seamstress finished her day's work and got on the bus to go home. 
like she did every time she got on the bus she made her way down past the middle of the bus and sat in the section designated for her and her people Rosa was tired and stop after stop more people got on the bus until eventually the section designated for whites only was full at that point as more white people got on the bus the bus driver turned around didn't make as much a request as a command that any colored person who was still in their seat should stand at that time for the remainder of their ride so the whites could have a place to sit down. In her autobiography, Rosa Parks said, When I sat down on the bus that day, I had no idea history was being made. I was just thinking of getting home. But I'd made up my mind. After so many years of being a victim of the mistreatment my people suffered, not giving up my seat, and whatever I had to face afterwards was not important. I did not feel any fear sitting there. I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. It was time for someone to stand up, or in my case, sit down. So I refused to move. What struck me were her opening words. I had no idea history was being made. She didn't recognize the ramifications or the significance of her actions on that December night. But more was going on than just the decision of a tired seamstress to remain seated. The miracle that Jesus did in feeding the 5,000 is one that is well known. Many of us have heard this miracle since we were in Sunday school. And when this miracle is taught, often we will focus on, and us preacher types will focus on that, you know what, we need to be like this little boy. We need to give Jesus just the very small things that we have, and Jesus will take that, and a lot is in a little when the Lord is in it. Amen? But that's not the main point of the miracle. I've heard this miracle approached as a model for how to handle problems. The other Gospels tell us that Jesus instructed the crowd to sit in small groups. He, he broke down the problem. And people have preached this to say, you see how our Lord approaches an issue? He breaks it down into small parts. And when you face a problem, break it down into small parts and tackle it a little at a time. And there is great wisdom in that. But that's not the point of the miracle. You see, it is often for us to read the miracle and to be enamored by what Jesus has done so we miss the meaning of it. We miss the point. I would remind you that in the Gospel of John, the miracles are referred to as signs. Every miracle is pointing to something greater. If we stop at the miracle, that's like stopping at the cell tower expecting our call to go through. The miracle is like the cell tower carrying the signal. We need to get to the message. We need to ask ourselves what is going on. And the miracle of feeding this 5,000 men, it was actually more like 20,000 people, really deals with two things. Here's the significance. One, who Jesus is. And two, how we are to respond to that. 
That's what this miracle is about because this miracle really serves as an introduction as to what is to come next. Now, this is in no way to minimize what Jesus has done. This is a miraculous event. I've actually heard scholars who are skeptical of the supernatural try to explain this miracle away. This is how they answer it. They say, this is what happened that day. Jesus didn't multiply loaves and fishes, they say. They say, this is what happened. They found this little boy who had his lunch. Now keep in mind, his lunch was the equivalent of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and chips. And they say, when the crowd saw this little boy that was willing to give up his lunch, they were all moved with a spirit of generosity, and they just began sharing their own food. There was no miracle, they say, other than people deciding not to be stingy. But that doesn't square with the facts, does it? Because look at what happens. If the little boy had become the focus of this miracle, we would know his name. But that's not what happens. Instead, people say, Jesus is the prophet. Not, Jesus found a little boy who was so generous. They say, he's the prophet, let's make him king. You don't do that if Jesus hadn't performed a miracle. So this is indeed a supernatural act. Our God does supernatural things. But those things are to point us to who He is. Now the key to understanding this miracle, I believe, is found in verse 4. After telling us the location of where Jesus is, and the fact that there are crowds following Him because they're seeing the signs, now John interjects that this is the time of the Passover. Now that should draw our attention because there are only three times in the Gospel of John that John mentions a Passover in John chapter 2 here in John 6 and then in John 13. So in many ways the Passover are like tent poles that are holding up this gospel. They kind of anchor it down for us to understand who Jesus is. Now in John chapter 2 when Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover he cleanses the temple. That is the miracle associated with the Passover in John chapter 2. And in doing so, Jesus says, by doing this, He says, I am the temple of God. And when this temple, His body is torn down, He says, it will be risen, be resurrected in three days. So now Jesus takes the Passover to say, I'm the temple. John chapter 13 begins the last day of Jesus' life. And it's connected with the Passover. And guess what the focus is? Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That becomes the focal point of the Passover in John 13. Now in John 2 and in John 13, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's very natural to say this is the Passover. John 6, He's not. He's far away from Jerusalem. But yet John connects this miracle to the Passover. So that gives us a clue that something is going on here more than just the ordinary. In fact, this miracle serves as an introduction to what Jesus teaches in the remainder of John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus establishes something. He says, I am the bread of life. Now keep in mind the Passover was associated not just with the deliverance from Egypt but also how God sustained them in the wilderness. So Jesus presents himself in John chapter 6 to say 
I am the bread of life. I am the life-giving bread. Because remember, after Israel left Egypt, for 40 years they were sustained by something, by a food that God gave them from heaven. We call it manna. In the Hebrew, manna literally means, what is it? So for 40 years, God fed his people on a food they called, what is it? I love that. It's like they walked out one morning and there's this white stuff on the ground and somebody, some Hebrew says to one another, manna? What is it? And they answer, manna. Manna? Manna. Manna. What is it? We don't know. But God provides it and it sustains us. And now here comes Jesus who places himself as the bread, the manna from heaven that sustains. So this miracle sets the stage for Jesus' teaching about who he is. And so notice something. So keep that in mind. This sets the stage. Now look what happens. Jesus multiplies the bread. He multiplies the fish. So in verse 11, we find out after he thanks God and they distribute the food in verse 12, everybody had eaten their fill. He tells the disciples, gather up the fra leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. They gather them up and guess what? They have 12 baskets full of bread left over. So now this miracle is living out a truth that Jesus is going to emphasize later. He is saying, not only am I the bread of life that can supply your needs and give you strength for the day, what I give you will supply your needs over and above what you think you need. He says, I will give life abundantly. Recognizing that took me back to John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and you might have it more. What? Abundantly. This miracle is a living illustration of the abundant life that Jesus gives. Don't you love those times when a meal is associated with abundance? Now granted as Americans, truth is, that's most every meal. But there are special times you remember. My kids used to love going to their grandma's house. Why? Because when mamma put food on the table, mamma put food on the table. You know exactly what I mean. And they loved it because whenever they would get food and they'd go back to their plate, my mom would always say the same thing. Bring that plate back here and get you something to eat. Mom, they got food on their plate. No, they don't. You let me feed them. Okay. And they even loved it the next morning, like Christmas morning, mom would make breakfast. And they loved it because Mamaw set out for them milk and orange juice. See, at the Herod house, you just get one thing to drink for breakfast and that's it, but not at Mamaw's house. They loved abundance. And it would bring joy. And Jesus is showing us here that you know what? He gives life. He sustains in abundance more than what we think. Now, the reality is this. As I say that, most of you in here will nod your head and agree. But I know there are some that even though you're shaking your head yes inside, on, on the outside, that inside you're thinking, but I'm not experiencing that. You feel weighed down by worry and anxiety. And life's like an anchor. So in your mind, you know, yes, I'm supposed to have abundant life, but, but I don't feel that. Now, that's why I want to ask you to consider the second part of this. If we're not experiencing abundant life, if I may be so bold as to say this, 
The problem is not with Jesus. The problem could be with us. That's why the second meaning of this miracle is not just who Jesus is, it's the bread of life that supersedes Moses and supersedes manna. But it's what does it mean to follow this one? You see, this miracle becomes about discipleship. The problem of the large crowd presents a test. In fact, John tells us clearly that Jesus goes to Philip. And he does this to test him. Verse 6, Jesus knows what he's going to do. He singles out Philip. See, we found out later or earlier in John that Philip was from this area. So here's the idea. Philip grew up in this area, so Philip should know where Sam's is. All right? You've got to feed 20,000 people. Let's find Sam's and get to work. Philip says, even if I know where it is, we don't have the money. If we had 200 denarii, which is eight months' wages, that wouldn't even do anything. We'd get some bologna and bread. That'd be about it. Andrew steps up. Andrew's found this little boy. But now keep in mind, look closely at what Andrew says. He says, it's, it's almost like he's making a joke. Well, I've got this little boy who's got five loaves of bread and two fish. But look at what he says in verse 9. But what are they for so many? You know, you can't read too much into the text, but I wonder if Andrew's saying, Jesus, all right, we don't have money, but we got two... Two fish and five loaves, but what good's that? You see, the test was, would they trust Jesus? And it could have been the response was, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe you can. But instead, there's a, a sense of skepticism of, Lord, we can't. That's why every problem we face becomes a test to us as believers. Will we trust what we can see and what we can figure out? Or will we walk by faith and say, Lord, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I believe you can. Every problem is a test for us to say, will we walk by faith or will we walk by sight? Will we trust God to do more than we think he can? Or will we become worried and anxious ridden because we don't see how it will work out? So I think we should be praying, Lord, Open our eyes to see the things you can do so that we are not caught up, worried and anxious and burdened by things we can't figure out. Because God is able to do more than we can think. I was reminded of that even this morning. On Easter Sunday, we finished our Who's Your One emphasis. As a congregation, we'd asked each member to think of one person they wanted to pray for to come to know the Lord. One member of the congregation came to me this morning to share a testimony. She'd been praying for a friend of hers that lives in another state. This friend had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and she's praying, Lord, save my friend, save my friend. Well, her friend passed away last week, but listen to this. She found out in talking with her friend that her friend was a believer, but it just had, had just turned to sin and she repented before she died she said Lord I want to recommit to you but get this the lady's husband wasn't a believer and you know what God did God saved him he was saved this this friend this lady at Trinity was praying for one thing God not only answered that prayer but did something beyond that that we could not do that is our God so our test becomes, will we trust God when we don't see how? And to know that He is at work. You know where that test comes? 
when Jesus puts us on a road, we would have never chosen. At some point in life, every one of us will find ourselves in circumstances we would have never, ever, ever picked. It's something we say at the Herod house. It's in the road we would have chosen, but God has placed us on it. So rather than be bad or angry, I will pray for grace to travel the road. And every one of you will face a circumstance in life where you think, God, this isn't what I signed up for. That happened with the people. We're told in verse 2, the only reason they're following Jesus is they saw the signs he was doing. They liked the miracle part. And in fact, John chapter 6 is going to turn a corner to start to talk about discipleship. What it means to follow Jesus beyond the miracles. In fact, they see the sign in verse 14 and they start saying, here's the prophet, here he is. But Jesus knows they're coming to make him king. They want a revolutionary now. Now think about this. This is Jesus with at least 5,000 men. He's got an army right there. But what does he do? He withdraws to the mountain by himself. Now Jesus is the king. But he is the king on his own terms. We don't make him king. He is king. And we don't have the right to negotiate with him the terms of our discipleship. That's what the people wanted. Tony Evans puts it like this, pastor out of Dallas. He says, oh yeah, the people wanted a king. They just didn't want the king of kings. They wanted a burger king. They wanted the king that would give them their food whenever they wanted it. And Jesus says, no. If you're going to follow me, it will be on my terms. Which means everything. And that cuts against the grain of everything we are told in our society. We are told it's about us. Get it the way we want it. We like options. You go, into any, you go into Starbucks and there's options. You can start by ordering your tall, non-fat latte with caramel drizzle. Or you can get a grande ice sugar-free vanilla latte with soy milk. Or a decaf soy latte with an extra shot of cream. Or a non-fat frappuccino with extra cream and chocolate sauce. If you're not in the mood for that, you can get your venti ice skinny hazelnut macchiato sugar-free syrup with extra shot light ice, no whip. you know an executive from Starbucks said they sat down and figured out there are 80,000 combinations of drinks you can choose from. 80,000. I just want a coffee. 80,000. But you know what? That's the way we're geared. I shouldn't be limited to one. I should have options. And so when it comes to faith, we carry that mindset into following Jesus. Give me the miracle work in Jesus who makes life smooth and there's never any challenges. That's the Jesus I want. This Jesus who says, take up your cross and follow me. And in this world, you'll have trials and tribulations. They persecuted me. They will persecute you. I'm not so sure. I'll take that Jesus light. No. This miracle sets the stage for us to understand that if we follow Jesus, it must be be on his terms which means everything no negotiation it is to say he is Lord 
and I am His no matter what. And I believe with all my heart, church, when we get to that point and we release our notions of what we think ought to happen and we give up how we have planned for life to go and we say, you are Lord and I will trust you, I think that's when we'll experience abundant life. Because then we're submitting to Him. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.